Breaking the rules is an approach that works well in investing and in business and in life. And for nine years now with this podcast, I've tried, I try to speak to all three, never one without the other two, never two without the third. Investing, business, life, they're all intermingled. But as Yoda once said, there is another. That was at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. Spoiler alert, he was referring to Princess Leia Organa of Alderaan. For me, there is another. References a fourth gravitational force around which this podcast rotates. As any longtime listener will know, that is games. Investing, business, life, games. And this week, I get to introduce you to the designer of one of the most successful and decorated board games of the past decade. Her name is Elizabeth Hargrave, and her game, played it? Wingspan. Elizabeth Hargrave, Wingspan. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Over the years, I've shared with you many of my favorite tabletop gaming recommendations, my Games, Games, Games series that leads off every December, before the holidays, before holiday gifts. So yeah, that's coming again soon, fools. And I have welcomed world-class game designers like Richard Garfield, who created Magic the Gathering, or Rob Davio, the godfather of legacy games, Reiner Knizia, the good doctor, one of the first, maybe the first person to make a full-time career out of game design and others. Elizabeth Hargrave first published tabletop board game Wingspan four years ago, challenging players to attract a beautiful and diverse collection of birds to their wildlife preserves. It's a competitive, light-to-medium-weight strategy game, playable in about an hour. Where did she come from? How did she, a first-time designer, do it? What business lessons can we learn from this million-selling-plus tabletop board game and the woman who created it? Elizabeth Hargrave is here in studio at Full HQ, and I'm excited for her to tell her story and share. Elizabeth, welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Is this your first investing podcast? I believe so. Yes. I'm delighted that that I could be that for you. Uh, as I referenced at the start, we do spend about a third of our time on the stock market and investing, and a third of our time on business, and we're going to be getting into that some, but a third on life, and that really connects, but there's a fourth, there's another, and that's games. That's the fourth thing that I've fourth threaded third. in over the course of time, and I'm so delighted to have um, one of our best game designers operating today, somebody who's created just a remarkable, prominent primary work, we'll get into that a little bit, and a number of other games since that have done well, and some more coming. And We're going to talk about that in a little while, Elizabeth Hargrave, but let me just start by asking, were you raised in a gaming family? Um, Not over the top. Gaming, we had games. Um, we played a lot of Hearts and Scrabble in my family. Good games. Yeah. 
Um, I recently played Sorry with my friend's kids and went and called my mom and apologized for making her play Sorry with me. <laughs> Am I right that Sorry has no choice? You're simply rolling dice and moving? Or is there well, an element of choice? You have multiple pieces that you can move ah, yes. if they've made it out of the starting position. But remember, you're like just <sighs> rolling over and over and over, hoping that you get the right roll to even be able to play the game. <laughs> it's hilarious. And so was it all a trick on us? Was it called Sorry by the design? cynically, or Parker Brothers, or Hasbro, or whoever was behind that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. that we sold you this game. Uh, no, I mean, for kids, I think that game does have a, a place in the world for kids playing with parents because it is so chance-based that kids actually do have a chance against their parents, as opposed to yeah. the kinds of games that you and I enjoy playing, where we want a lot of agency and control over what happens in the game. Yeah, um, which is hard to play with a kid that doesn't have the same analytical capabilities and can't, you know, can't keep up with their parents. You're right, and that's that's so. such. I'm glad you use that word agency, Elizabeth. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, C.T. Nguyen. Have you ever come across him? He's a games philosopher. I would say like he's the games philosopher because there aren't a lot of people with PhDs in philosophy rattling around major American universities saying it's all about games. But C.T. Nguyen is one such. I had him on the podcast earlier this year. Fantastic conversation. And he was just talking about the unique thing that games offer as art. Because I take very seriously the notion that games are art. Like that, I don't even need to be serious about that. To me, that's obvious. Uh, and you may or may not agree. And we're not even trying to go down this rabbit hole. But he said what defines games as an art is agency. That's what they bring versus painting or sculpture or music that you actually participate and you have choice and agency. And that's why I have invaded against Candyland multiple times in the past in the show because there's no agency at all in Candyland. Sorry, at least you have which pawn will I move if I'm even starting? But I'm glad you said agency because to me, that defines great games. At least great games for adults. That's what I should have said. Yeah. Yeah, because I think there's a role that games play for kids that's about learning to take turns, learning to be a good loser. Um, there's a lot of social things that games teach kids that don't necessarily require them to give the kids a lot of agency. But, but yes, in the games for adults, the games that we enjoy playing, that's this whole modern world, you know, since the 80s and 90s, really, that didn't exist when we were kids in the same way. Um, yeah. It's all about agency. It's about feeling like the things you do on your turn are meaningful within the game. That that you have some hope of impacting the outcome, and that you know the best player is going to win. Yeah, which I would say I hope for of life as well. That the best players will win life, and that we have agency throughout. And some people feel a lot more agency than others, depending on where we are in the world right now. But uh, the overlap between games and life and thinking about agency are worthy of more reflection than we're going to give it right now, because I want to ask you my next question, Elizabeth. <laughs> were you inventing games as a child? Were you somebody who was just coming up with stuff? I don't remember inventing any games as a kid. I, I was outdoors a lot as a kid. When I was in elementary school, um, I lived in southern Illinois, and we lived on the edge of a national forest. Mm. And and it was the time when parents would just you know shoo their kids outside and tell them to come home by dark. And so my friends and I would run around in the woods until dark and, you know, play hobo and whatever, I don't know, fairy houses. And yeah, so 
I was not designing games, but had you know other imaginative forms of play in my childhood. Absolutely, sure. and I know nature is something. Is this something that you've gone back and gotten a PhD in at any point? I'm not quite clear on your educational background, Elizabeth. I know you went to Brown, where my brother Tom Gardner went as well. So Providence, Rhode Island. My degree there was in public policy, and then I went to graduate school for it too, which is what brought me here to DC. Aha! Uh-huh. Things start to make government. sense. Yep. Okay, good. But not really making up games as a child. At some point, you started making up games as an adult. We're going to get into that in a little while. But I, I was Googling you and learning. Anybody can find out a lot more about Elizabeth at elizhargrave.com. Uh, and that's your personal website. And there I discovered that you, you blogged extensively. I would say, especially 2009 to 2015, Elizabeth, I clicked through some. I flicked back through them and Tips for enjoying the natural world in, around, outside the Washington, D.C. area was a big part of your haunt back then. Really lovely, like pictures, pointers, inspirations, obviously driven by your love of nature. You wrote at one point, and I quote, D.C. is about as far north as I'm willing to live, end quote. Elizabeth, is that still true? And what are your reflections on your blogging days? That is still true. My brother went the opposite way and lives in Montana and has just convinced me to go there for Christmas, and I'm a little terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a flight in and out? <laughs> yeah. Not a helicopter drop or anything? No, it'll all, it'll all be fine. <laughs> but um, I mentioned we lived in Southern Illinois, and then we moved from there to Florida. So ah. um, that really was my, uh, that's my happy place, is <laughs> in the warmth. As for the blocking, um, it took a lot of time. I really enjoyed it, but after a certain point, I, 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 the time I stopped was actually around the time that I started designing Wingspan. So I think mm. it might have been sort of um, that my creative energy was was focused elsewhere. Yeah, and I'm wondering as we start to move because 2019 was the year that Wingspan was published. A big part of my interest, we're going to get into this a little bit later too, is just design. I love design and understanding process and how people come up with things, and so I'm fascinated by that. There are lots of Wingspan fans listening to us right now, so I'm, I, I, I very much want to get there. But before we go there, I'm just curious, like your professional life, like what were you doing in 2015, and then you started to think about and make a game and. I'm even wondering, are you working today? Or are you now a full-time game designer? I'm not even sure, but could you talk about your professional life over the last eight to ten years? Yeah, so I can go back a little bit farther than that for a little context. So I came to D.C. in the 90s and started working for the federal government. I worked at the Department of Health and Human Services for a while, and then I was on the Hill for a few years. Um, and we realized after a few years that was not a great fit for me a little too intense. Um, Could you give a quick example? Is there an anecdote? <laughs> what does intense feel like? Very long hours with just high pressure all the time in the sense of like everybody thinks that their thing is the most important and it needs to be done yesterday. And yet, none of it actually ever gets done. Mm. Um, so that it, it's just frustrating. And I think it's that feeling has probably only gotten worse over time. So I went from there to, actually I quit for six months and traveled. Wow. Yeah. And then came back and and got a job doing 
consulting, but uh, policy research uh, in a consulting capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was doing a lot of like focus groups and interviews with um, people who are affected by the Medicare program. That was sort of always my specialty, um, healthcare for the elderly and people with disabilities. So I went from the Hill. I actually quit my job and traveled for six months uh, to get a clean break and then came back and started doing policy research uh, based out of a consulting firm. And um, I was working mostly on the Medicare program, so healthcare for people with disabilities okay. and the elderly. And so all through the time that I was designing Wingspan, I was doing that, um, but sort of in a freelance um, capacity. So my time was very, the time that I was spending on consulting was pretty variable. So there were times that I was probably more than 40 hours a week and other times that I had, you know, good chunks of time that I could spend on game design. Great. um, Which was a really nice um, luxury to have. Because uh, I really do, once I get into the flow of working on something, I can get pretty obsessed, and it's nice to be able to run with that. Yeah. It also causes people usually to finish things. Like some of my friends who yeah. can really focus, I won't quite say monotask because that's its own thing, but I mean, these people tend to finish things. You, you, you tackle something and you take it down that steer to the ground. And, and you've obviously done that a bunch of times now with games. But let me ask you about game design, because where did that emerge from? I mean, I get that you were starting somewhere after blogging, but you didn't design games as a kid, it sounds like. When, when did you start to, I don't know, push cardboard around on a prototypical game mat of your own design? Yeah, so I had I had discovered sort of modern hobby board games, board games for adults, um, around 2005. So I've been playing for eight or ten years. Awesome. I, I think I started working on Wingspan really in like 2013, 2014. Um, and part of it was really just feeling like I love all of the ways that these games work, but what they are about does not speak to me at all. Like we were playing a lot of games about trains and castles and you know sci-fi. We were playing a lot of Race for the Galaxy and like none of those topics are like passions of mine in any way. And so my husband at one point literally said, What if there was Race for the Galaxy but with birds? Boom. And my brain just like latched onto that. Yeah. Uh, so that was really the the jumping off point. And then the next several years were just iterating on that idea over and over until something worked. So, Race for the Galaxy, again, gamers listening to us will know that that is a tableau-building, pure card game. Um, Very popular, very playable, 25 to 30 minutes for those who know it. Lots of icons. You have to kind of memorize a new language, in this case, a visual language of icons. Tom Lehman design, very popular game. And so something you know that makes a lot of sense to model on, and I love how it was kind of the switch of the theme. Now you added a lot of your own mechanisms. By no means does Wingspan look or feel like Race for the Galaxy in particular, but I see how that launched you, and it was the thematic substitution that it sounds like caught your attention. I totally get so many of the games that I have in my library are about trains, <laughs> or or Dungeons and Dragons, or sci-fi this or that. Um, there are some economic simulations. There are a lot of games that have names of European cities. Yes, right. those two, right. right? A lot of games like that. 
But I believe, no worries at all. Go ahead, yeah. I was going to say cough it out. Yep. Totally, you're all good. Right. I'm going to pick it up there. Through doing good. But I believe with your 2019 publication of Wingspan, which we're now going to talk about, uh, which you turns out you were d- designing five, six years beforehand, not only did you catch the gaming world in a place it wasn't expecting with a theme, b- building an aviary, attracting birds that a lot of people hadn't seen before, but the beautiful hand-painted cards, the Audubon-looking illustrations on each card, and that each bird would be represented with its own special ability and its value. And all of a sudden, what I've noticed since then, and we'll talk about this later too, there are a lot of other games about nature right now. And I don't really think there were that many before 2019, but I think you know, swap out the Dungeons & Dragons themes and maybe the sci-fi spaceship themes, it feels like nature, specifically Earth and the planet that we live on, the planet we're trying to protect. I, I feel like, in a lot of ways, you have ignited a firestorm of copycats in a good way who now recognize let's make games not about, I don't know, scantily clad warrior maidens, but in fact about grizzly bears. <laughs> a game like Cascadia recently, also celebrating nature. Anyway, your husband triggered this by saying that that was a beautiful question. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I, I Wingspan definitely wasn't the first game with a nature theme, and I think some of the other ones that came out probably were already in the works by the time Wingspan had come out. I don't think I can take full credit for this wave, but I I do think it was a hole in the market that probably other designers were also feeling. And I think now we're far enough out that some of the games that are coming out now are directly inspired by Wingspan. Um, I mean, you see it in a game like Earth. Mm-hmm. Just came out right where they've got the fun facts on the bottom of the cards. Yeah, you know, and and you started with that. And who doesn't <laughs> like? We were talking to our colleague Dan Boyd here at the Motley Fool. Dan behind the glass for many a Motley Fool podcast and Motley Fool Live. And Dan was just saying to you because we got to hang out with Dan beforehand, and he was just saying, "Pause for a sec. I just lost my train of thought." He just said that thing, <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> what what had you just said, Elizabeth, that triggered that? Earth had the fun facts on the box. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Three, two, one, go. You're awesome. Thank you. Three, two, 57 years old. I didn't do this when I was 37, I don't think. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. And Dan said the way he plays Wingspan with his father and brother is they always read the fun fact at the bottom of each of your bird cards. So, you're right. I, I mean, I, I, I know you're not trying to claim that you started all this. I'm kind of crediting you with that a little bit, but you don't. You modestly can demure. But I, I will say that um, the idea of putting nature facts right there in the game, learning as we're playing, sure, it's happened many times in the past, but you are a really iconic version of that in just the last few years. I do think Wingspan can take credit for showing that there's a market for that theme. And I think a lot of board game publishers have have to be very risk averse in picking the games that they publish. Um, and they know that castles and trains have sold in the past, right? But they're like putting out all this capital to send off to the manufacturer to, pub, to print a bunch of games and they have these physical objects that they then have to sell, and they don't want to print more than they're going to be able to sell. And so, like, tried and true has been the name of the game for a long time. Um, and I'm happy that we have opened up another sort of genre, or genre isn't the right word for it, really, but subject area. 
subject area indeed, and a very broad and deep one. Wingspan has been an absolute phenomenon since its debut just four years ago, 2019. Many listening now will will have played it. I've regularly featured it and its expansions on my Games, Games, Games episodes here, but of course many more will not yet have played Wingspan. This is almost silly or sublime for me to ask the designer of Wingspan, but Elizabeth, would you give an overview of your game? Yeah, so Wingspan is a game where you are, it has 180 bird cards in a deck, and you're trying to play those bird cards out in front of you onto your own personal player mat. So it's very much like you're building your own little world that no one else can mess with. And every time you play a bird in front of you, it makes you better at doing something else in the game. So, you know, you need to draw more cards, you need to get food to feed your birds, or you need to be able to lay eggs on your birds to score points. And um, as you're playing the bird cards out in front of you, it's making your turns more powerful for for the future. Um, So you start out the game taking these really simple, just like, I'm just going to draw this one card on my turn. And by the end of the game, you're like, okay, I get to draw three cards, and then I get to use this bird to do this thing, and this bird to do this thing. And, you know, you get these super complex... um, Combo chain-erific. Yeah. Combo-erific Combo-tastic turns by the end of the game. And my first play, I was just noting three to one go. And I'm checking my own stats as someone, by the way, who logs each game I play into the wonderful BG Stats app. I've played Wingspan. I just checked it 56 times. That's a lot of play for me, someone who plays more than 100 different games every year. But I know it's paltry compared to your biggest fans. We've had so much fun with the base game and all the expansions. My first play, I'm just noting, was January 17th of 2019. When did the game come out? 2019? First week? You were an early adopter. Thank you. And it was a learning game. I played it with my son, Gabe, who's an amazing birder, and so much fun to play the game with because he has his own fun facts he adds in about all the different birds. (laughs) But I noted that I blew one rule, and I'm wondering if this is the most frequently blown rule. You would know, Elizabeth, but we forgot in that learning game to pay the egg cost when playing new birds in the second and succeeding columns. Yeah, do so people do that? took off like crazy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, I invalidated <laughs> our final scores because we didn't play by the actual rules. But that's why we play learning games. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is a rule that confuses people in multiple directions. So, so people do what you did, and people also get confused in the opposite direction, that they think that you have to play an egg to do anything on your entire player mat. Okay. Which then like yeah. you can't do. That's kind of like playing sorry and trying to get your right. pawns yeah. started. <laughs> um so yeah, and I think that is a victim that the the board could only be so big to fit into a um, standard game box, right? There's like a very standard square size. And and you and cards are a standard size. And so the three rows that your bird cards go in, yeah. take up a certain amount of size on the player mat, and then the row for everything else about playing a bird was this tiny little row. At and the so top. People perceive it as not being parallel to the other three. I hear you. And um, I want to talk some about the production of the game and your publisher. So your publisher, Jamie Stegmeyer of Stonemeyer Games fame, uh, who's been on this podcast. I had Jamie on maybe four or five years ago. Um, I'd love to hear some of the how you met him and some of the initial partnership. But what I want to say about him, and you and I talked about this beforehand, is I had Jamie on maybe 2018 because he had conquered 
Kickstarter. In my mind, he'd even written a book about how to win on Kickstarter as just his own solo guy, just kind of figuring out that there is a way you could sell and produce and promote games more effectively through Kickstarter, which I think a lot of people know is the big crowdfunding site that founds many things, games included. And he just raised $1.8 million for his game Scythe, which is another wonderful Stonemeyer game alongside Wingspan. And you were mentioning that Wingspan, which came out a year or so later, was the first time that he did not use Kickstarter for one of his games. Um, I think publishers use Kickstarter for a few reasons. One is to sort of gauge demand for their games. Uh, as I was saying before, it can be really hard to know how many copies to print, and you, it can be disastrous to be wrong and print too many. Um, or in the case of Wingspan, it's not great to print too few either. Did that right? happen? Like there was an article about me in the New York Times, and there were no copies of Wingspan available to like capitalize on that. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Although it still seems like you've done pretty it's well. Okay. They eventually got around and bought it, but that's not great it turned timing. Turned out okay. Yeah. Um, were you trying to stop the articles? Print it later, three months later. <laughs> <laughs> the other big reason that publishers use Kickstarter is um, they get a higher margin on the games. Because if you're selling into retail, you're selling through a wholesaler, and that wholesaler is only giving the publisher maybe 50% of the retail price of a game. Whereas a Kickstarter, they're getting the full. Uh, mm. List price minus whatever you know. I forget what the Kickstarter percentage is. It's not fifty percent, right? Right. Um, so they can get a really high margin on that first bunch of games, and then print extras to also sell in retail, and and at the same time, sort of be doing this market research of like how many people even want this game. We don't even know. Um, but I think, I mean, I don't want to put words in Jamie's mouth. My understanding that he said, I think publicly, is um, that he's decided that that amount that Kickstarter takes out isn't worth it, number one. And number two, um, he would rather have the game available, have people order it, and then just have it show up at their house the next week instead of um, the big drawback with Kickstarter is that you're asking people to pay $60 or more for a game and then to wait eight to 12 months before it shows up at their doorstep. And I've done that a, a few big times. Big lag, right? Um, and he just, like, as someone providing things that bring people joy, wants that lag to be much shorter. So. And I think it's quite brilliant. And I've noticed that change. And I'd forgotten that Wingspan was the first game that he's done that with. And you and I also mentioned, well, you just said it, that you kind of underproduced based on undersupply against the demand that was out there. Um, so maybe that was his first experiment, a learning journey for everybody. But I've noticed every Stonemaier game since has been also done the same way. And I have to say, as a customer, I love that. And I hope Jamie's listening. I love what you're doing because it's a delight to get excited and know about a new game's out by a designer you you appreciate, or at least a publisher that you know, and it's going to arrive in two or three weeks. Right. And so that that takes a lot of moxie, some chutzpah, and probably some market research or numbers to know how many to print in the first place. That you have to make often in China and ship sometimes for a month to get through customs to get here. There's a huge amount of logistics he's managing right now by taking that risk himself. Right, right. And you have to have the cash flow to do it, too, because you're paying the manufacturer up front and then getting paid for the games, right? So, 
Now, this gets us a little bit into the digital games world, because Wingspan doesn't just exist as a an analog copy, although it does. And, and this is something else we were talking about. I really love playing games, because I love playing with the people around the table. Board Game Arena, BGA for big-time gamers, you'll know this is like a magnet site, increasingly where digital games, digital copy of Wingspan. I also remember my iPad, I think... Eight or ten years ago, all of a sudden, for the first time, a game that I esteemed was there on my iPad. I had to pay three ninety nine for the app instead of thirty nine ninety nine for the game. I still pay thirty nine ninety nine for the game, Elizabeth, because I don't know if you're like me, but I like to play real games around the table with other people. Yes, I do both. I prefer to play in person, and I do think that there you get a lot out of playing games in person. In terms of that social interaction, in terms of unplugging your eyeballs from the screen, in terms of the tactile feeling of playing with the pieces, like you get none of that from playing online. Um, but also for me, board games scratch such an itch in my brain that I also enjoy just like it's it's more like playing a puzzle when I'm playing online, right? It was just like, yeah, give me those juicy decisions to make. And um, you don't have to wait for somebody to come over to your house exactly. or arrange things on Saturday at six thirty PM. You could just tap in. Also I will say, and I, I do it greatly admire and I'm glad that that digital world exists, even though I'm not availing myself of it too much. But I mean if you think about it Probably the greatest players of individual games in the world are out there competing right there in digital format. They've got ELO ratings. They've got their BGA profiles. I mean, if you want to play in the NBA, if we're talking about sports, you either have to be, as a woman in the WNBA or as a man in the NBA, a really great athlete, and you're only playing analog. But digitally, the greatest NBA players of every individual game are typically somewhere out there in the apps out on BGA with their ratings, and they're playing thousands of times. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Um, I have a friend actually. So there was, there's been an event. It just happened a couple months ago in Las Vegas called the World Series of Board Gaming. Do you know about this event? Which is like a very high stakes game tournament. You play multiple events, all sort of leading up to. I forget. It's like a twenty five thousand dollar purse or something. Not bad. So I have a friend who's considering playing in the Wingspan tournament next year, and he is doing that. He's like training on Board Game Arena. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. And so, um, so now getting back into the business of this, I'm curious for whatever you want to share. I'm not asking for any of Jamie's secret cards or inside dope here, but I'm curious. What is the business model like when you take Wingspan from a beautiful box game into the digital world? Um, it is something that I blissfully don't actually have to participate in at all, but I, I do know a little bit. Um, so he licensed the digital rights to an outside developer. Developer, um, I believe they're Czech. They're called Monster Couch. Um, and they just sort of went off and developed the board game and then reached out to us when they had something ready for testing. Um, but it was very far along. Um, and then we helped sort of guide it just on the edges at that point. They had really had a very nice implementation by the time I saw anything. 
And then they did a big round of beta testing where they got Wingspan fans to come in and play a whole bunch of games. And now they've got this amazing community of people. So they were just uh, beta testing the Oceania expansion, which mm-hmm. is about to come out digitally. Um, and there was all this buzz in the Wingspan Facebook group about everyone that was play testing it and how it was going and all this. So, yeah, but it's it's pretty much completely separate from okay. Stonemaier as a game company. Okay. Not everyone does it that way. I uh-huh. know other game companies that have hired developers or that sort of more directly contract out the development. But Board Game Geek, a site I've mentioned many times, the magnet site for tabletop gamers worldwide, I, I believe. I've used it for 20-plus years. I'm a huge fan of Board Game Geek. Your game has, you may know this, you may not know this. Your game has been rated on Board Game Geek eighty-four thousand times. Wow! So, I haven't looked in a while. So that's higher than I realized. That's pretty spectacular. <laughs> um, your game is the number twenty-five game all time at this point. So you've just cracked the top twenty-five. And as I looked at the other, and I've played most of the games in the top twenty-five, if not all, because I love games and I play all the games all the time. Sometimes I work and do podcasts, but. There are only two games in the top 25 that have more ratings on them. They're, technically, they're all slightly higher rated than Wingspan, because you're 25 and there's 24 ahead. But when you actually look at what people have played and rated, only two games ahead of Wingspan have been played more than Wingspan. Elizabeth, unfair quiz, that's why I'm asking. Do you want to guess what either or both of those two games are? Am I allowed to look at the list? You're totally not allowed to look at the list. <laughs> And you can instantly trying to remember what's in the top twenty-five. What would have been rated more? Oh, so see, like Gloomhaven and Brass, I know are in the number one and number two slots, but I don't think they have that large a player. You're right. Your game has been played many, many more times than those two games. Heavier. Which is actually a bias on the Board Game Geek ratings that um, when you, which worries me for new gamers, right? Like if you are just learning about the world of board games, Gloomhaven and Brass are not where you should start, mm. but they're the number one and two rated games, right? You're right. Um, but but I digress. I cannot think of what is in the top twenty five. That I, I, as soon as you'll say them, I'll go. Oh, of course. And I just can't. One of them you'll say. Oh, of course. And the other, uh, you you might say. Oh. Um, and uh, again, gamers, we're speaking to you right now, and a lot of others. I might be whistling Dixie. So cutting right to the chase, the most rated game of all in the top twenty five is number six. It's terraforming Mars. Oh, and it's been rated okay. 93,000 times. It's also been out um, substantially longer than Wingspan. And but, it's um, a great game. Yeah, it is a great game. Time. And then the 18th game is Seven Wonders Duel, the two-player card version of the very popular Seven Wonders board game. That's been rated 88,000 times. But fun fact for you, Elizabeth, of the top 25 games of all time at this point, based on present gamer sentiment, only two of the ones ahead of you have been played more. so Or been rated. That's the other weird thing of like, yeah. <laughs> Who knows how many times any of them have been played, and and the, it's such a niche thing to go rate a game on Board Game Geek. And 
So I would guess, actually, that Wingspan has been played way more than either of those games because it has been played by a lot of people who do not know that Board Game Geek exists. And that is such a good point. You're absolutely right. Very geeky people, and that's what it's right there in the name, Board Game Geek. Hang out and use the forums and other great assets that are there for gamers that I've appreciated as a community member for 20-plus years. But, yeah. Not a lot of people go to BGG necessarily, and when we talk about a broadly relevant game, one that has attractive birds, welcomes you in with themes and playable mechanics, I, I would bet I would bet a lot more people have played Wingspan. I mean, the thing that has blown my mind is how much it broke out into the birding world, right? And so there are a lot of people that Wingspan was their first game, which was never really my intention. I don't. I say that it sort of was. I want it. It was actually during the development process, sort of a push and pull with me and Jamie, where he was saying, My gamers on my mailing list are going to want this to be, you know, nice and meaty and complex. And I was saying, Yeah, but I want people who like birds to be able to <laughs> play it, to have some hope of playing it. Um, and I think we ended up in a really sweet spot because of that push and pull. Um, but it's not necessarily the game that I would say, if you want to try a modern grown-up board game, start here. It's a little bit more complex. than like I might send someone to Cascadia first, yeah. right? But I think the theme motivates people to push through that a little bit and, and stretch a little bit more than normal to, to make it work. I'd like to point out in passing, people can log their plays on Board Game Geek beyond just rating a game like, I think it's an 8.5 out of 10, I think it's a 6.5 out of 10. Geeky people, I'm one of them, will say, well, I, I just played, you did too, good, so we're both geeks and I'm not surprised. <laughs> so I will say that as of this moment, as of this recording, Wingspan has been played by people who have logged it using Board Game Geek, which is admittedly a small, small group of 559,579 times. Wow. That's a big number. That is a big number. No matter what. Okay, let's now, move on. It sold 1.7 million copies. So that's a that is a measure, right? Of like, okay, how many people are using Board Game Geek? Out? Well, let's puzzle this out together because the people on Board Game Geek also show how many own it, <laughs> and it's 129,000 people. Right. And you just said 1.7. So about the beginning of this year. Okay, so there we go. So less than 10 percent of people who own the game. Use Board Game Geek and say, I just played it or I own it. And so one can only imagine. And that's got to feel pretty great for what I think was a first time published game designer with your Wingspan 2019 game that you started in 2013. Yep. Yep. Okay, let's move on to one of my favorite topics design. Could be the design of anything, really. I love to explore the creative process of writing with my authors in August. But really, I think my favorite form of design is game design. And when I had Jamie Stegmeyer on a few few years back, as I mentioned, he said, and I quote, you know, I learned so much about my game designs by playing a wide variety of other games. And it's also my main social outlet because I love playing games. Jamie went on, I host a weekly game night every Wednesday, and then we often play games on Saturday. And sometimes we'll get together for just a random game other times in the week, end quote. Elizabeth, does this describe you? How much is is playing for you a part of designing? I think playing games makes you a better designer. I also think that 
in the time that we have in our day play testing games that you're designing takes up it's a zero sum with with time that you have to play published games mm. um, and also it's my experience that my friends with kids have less time and mental bandwidth to play games darn kids than I do um, so that because I'm not playing as often as Jamie is in person um, but yeah, I do. Uh, I have learned that what I really need to do to make it happen is to schedule things. Either like I have standing monthly things with some of my friends. I'm like, we're, if if nothing else happens this month, we're going to play on this Saturday of the month. Um, and then I have other friends that we get together and play games. And then at the end of that night, we're going to be like, okay, pull out your calendar. When's the next time we're going to play? Those two things have made a huge difference in how often I get games to the table. Because um, if it's just like, oh, yeah, well, let's play games sometime, then it just kind of gets lost in the sea of busy GC people with kids never have time to do anything <laughs> fun. <laughs> So let's go back to the just the root, the earliest days of Wingspan. Was it cards? Was it a bird on a card? Was it writing down a point value for that bird and then giving it a special effect? Uh, did it start with the, the game board that you play the birds into? Just talk us through the, the initial design steps or, was, or wins. It was cards only. My very first draft was... I printed out a bunch of pieces of cardstock with a little clip art bird on them, and everything else was handwritten in pencil. Like, super fast prototype. I have learned since then about the engineering concept of fail faster, which is apparently what I did accidentally. <laughs> um, just, like, get it to the table. I have trouble planning out a whole game in my head. I have to see how it is on the table and how things interact. Um, I'm, I'm very tactile that way and, and sort of uh, visual, um, and it, it doesn't play out in my head. Yeah. I'm not... Have you been seeing this stuff online about like to, how much to, can people visualize in their head? Like when you, when I say look, picture an apple, do you see an apple in your head? I, I don't see. An I'm apple. not that way either. And I, I would say you described an empirical process, which is very much how I kind of go through life or, or pick stocks or thinking about new ways of thinking about things. I need to kind of prototype and just start playing with it because I can't think ahead of it. And I think yeah. I I think you described me in some ways, and I'm sure a lot of other people hearing you. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. So it starts with cards. You're writing pencil here, this ability, this right. thing. Right. What was the next step or eureka moment? So the bird cards have a lot of information on them. And I started keeping track of that in a spreadsheet. Eventually, one eureka moment was literally just learning. There are programs you can use that then take that spreadsheet data and make a deck of cards for you. Um, you have to tell it where to put all the information, but it, like you tell it once for the the card layout, and then it makes all 52 or however many cards for you. Nice. Um, I did not do that for a while. I was making each card by hand on the computer um, with sort of a template. But I had you know when I changed the the scoring rule for what a card was worth, I had to go in and change that number on every card. You know. So that was a big breakthrough just in my in my design process, my prototyping process. Uh, but it was it was a lot of iteration. It was the the basic mechanic of like your your 
acquiring cards and food and using them to play out birds in front of you has been stable the whole time. But everything else changed in many ways in terms of like the player mat didn't exist at first. The player power, the bird powers, the powers on the cards didn't really exist at first. Some birds got powers like uh, the predators did things and Mm -hmm. the brown headed cowbird always had that power of when other people lay eggs, you get an egg. And that's because in real um, life, the cowbird lays out. its eggs in other birds' nests, which is one of the fun facts that I didn't know before I played Wingspan, but now I know. And really, the reason that the fun facts ended up on the bottom of the cards was to explain that about, specifically about the brown-headed cowbird, because it is such a cool fact. So, like, my, like, I just think that that's a cool thing in the world that people should know about. And so I wanted it to be in the game. (laughs) So, like, everything else sort of mushroomed from there. Like, people thought that was cool. And so, um, like, let's go further down that road. And, um, And then a lot of, after I pitched the game and was working with Jamie, a lot of the development that the two of us did together was around really building up what I was talking about at the very beginning of like that sense of engine building, that sense that your turns by the end of the game are much um, more, more exciting and more powerful than they were at the beginning of the game, that you've built something um, that's that's uh, giving you more and more stuff. And that was uh, probably the weakest thing about Wingspan. It, it was a fun little game when I pitched it, but it didn't have a ton of engine building. And uh, when I pitched it, uh, Jamie actually had me go work on it with that mission for a few months and then send him a new version. And then he signed it once I had already sort of built in some of that engine building. Um, And then we, like the player met, took it to a whole other level. Yeah. Now, I know a big part of game design, I'm thinking about video games, I'm thinking about card games, tabletop games, I'm thinking about a lot of other things in life, too. Playtesting, you know, putting it out there and seeing how people react. I'm curious, how much of the development involved playtesting, do you have any anecdotes or insights about the amount of playtesting that a game like Wingspan gets or requires? I lost track of how many times I playtested Wingspan, but people often say, for a game sort of in this class, you want to playtest it at least 100 times before it's going to come out. Um, I, I probably did way more than that. And, and you know, now it's that might be closer now that I'm sort of starting my prototypes a little further along because I understand more about how games work mm. and, and what's going to work. But... Yeah, I have um, a group of other designers that I playtest with once a week, so that gets me a bunch of playtests. Um, and then, you know, now I have this great mailing list of people that are willing to playtest my games here in the DC area. I can just set stuff up, and people will come out. Um, and there's a couple other groups here in DC. There's a lot of designers here in the DC metro area, and probably in most metro areas, you get this amazing critical mass. It's I think it's good to playtest with other designers because, um, number one, you can sort of do a quid pro quo. You're not going to burn them out because you're also playtesting their game yeah. for them. And so, like, there's I scratch your game, you there. scratch my game. Right. You can only buy people pizza so many times to play your <laughs> crappy game draft. But also, they're just thinking about how games work at a different level than most gamers are. And so, like, if you've got something in early stages and you really need to think about why something's working or not, 
that can be super helpful. I do think you also need to play test with random gamers or depending on what level you're aiming at, also like random non-gamers if you if you want that to be your audience because you get a different type of feedback. Like designers can fill in a lot of things that you haven't said out loud and just sort of know how something should work. But if you don't say them out loud for the people that need it, you need to catch that, right? Mm. And so gamers will catch stuff like that where um, you need to be really explicit about about how the rules work and um, and just catch like we- weird other ways that people might interpret something and those sorts of things. And, and just to get the broadest possible number of people. I mean, if you look at the, my list of playtesters in any of my games, I get a lot of people to play my games. I yeah. want that broad experience because um, different people will see things differently and, very and valuable. play differently. Yeah. Did you know you had a hit? I... No. <laughs> it depends when, you ask. So when I pitched it to Stonemeyer, I thought I had a good game. And when it went to press, I knew it was better than the game I had pitched. But at the point that I was pencils down on Wingspan, everything I had ever heard in sort of the how-to-be-a-game-designer world was like, okay, as a first-time game designer in this niche industry like you should be happy if your board game sells like 5000 copies that's a respectable first run and then at some point i heard Jamie say on a podcast between then and when it actually came out that his minimum print run was 10000 and i was like oh okay all right then that's bigger than 5000 great and then he didn't really engage me on the question of how many copies to print uh, but he did go out and, and talk to a bunch of distributors and try and figure out, like, okay, first-time game designer, game about birds, like, what do you think the demand is going to be? And they they all told him, aim low. So he printed 10,000 copies of the game, which is his minimum print run. And um, he put it up for sale. He did his thing where he, like, teased it for a little while and starting in like November saying this is going to be available for sale in January and when he started teasing it I started to be like oh people are really excited for this so you could see it a little bit in that December 2018 period mm. you could tell something there was this Venn diagram the people in the Venn diagram of birders and gamers were losing their minds and the pictures he was posting were beautiful. Like it was, he did a really good job of the rollout. It is a beautiful game, and that's yeah. part of the pleasure of playing the game, especially yeah. that analog version of it. And so then I had scheduled this vacation in January, and I was on an island with no internet <laughs> when Wingspan went for sale online. <laughs> and I came back and it sold out. Um, so that's really when I knew. That is so exciting. And again, you are a unicorn so far as I can tell because very few first-time game designers would hit like that. There's also a little bit, we'll have a quick side conversation about 
female board game designers and women in games. And I know this is a passion of yours, and you've even taken the time on your blog at one point just to list every female game designer that came into contact with you or let you know. And there's a whole bunch of pictures making the point that there are a lot more female gamers and game designers than most people know. With that said, though, Elizabeth, when we look at like the top 25 games on Board Game Geek, you may be the only female game designer, and I'm not even sure in the top 100 how many there would be. So, you are a unicorn across a couple of different dynamics, and it's just got to be so much fun and so rewarding. I do have to ask you, before we finish, about what's coming next and what's coming up, because while I focused on Wingspan, because it's the game so many have played and we know, you're doing a lot of other work. But, But I'm curious, before we go there, may I ask you briefly, financially, has this been somewhat rewarding? Rewarding or extremely rewarding? Life-changing. That is so awesome. Are you now able to be, and do you want to be, a full-time game designer? Yes. So, 2019, I juggled both. um, And I was going to all these board game conventions. I had to randomly go to Berlin on six weeks' notice because I got nominated for the Kennerspiel des Jahres, which is like the Oscar board games. Exactly. This German award, and um, they do not give you a lot of notice that you've been nominated. And I already had like stuff for my consulting job lined up. I was supposed to be on a site visit in North Carolina, and I had to call up my clients, who thank God include some board gamers, <laughs> <laughs> and explain that you need to go to Germany to to perhaps receive the Kennerspiel des Jahres. Uh, yeah, and so they were like, "You need to go to Berlin. We'll work it out." And we like jiggled some stuff around, and I then I flew directly from the award ceremony basically to my site visit, and I was like, "Okay, something's got to give here." Not that I expect to be doing that every year, but yeah, it, the board game circuit is a lot of convention travel and a lot of and just, you know, playtesting play board games every week is more fun than than consulting. I believe um, it. So yeah, so I my clients that this that same my main client sort of came to me at the end of 2019 and was like, so it's time to renew this major contract that we that I had been doing for them for 12 years, and they were like, we would love to have you back, but we're getting the impression that maybe wow. you're not coming back. That is a so life changer. It was great. Um, I mean, they were very understanding about it because they sort of got the situation that I was in. And, so yeah, I quit my day job. I'm doing this full time, um, but I get royalties for every copy that sells. And honestly, at this point, if I never designed another game, I'd probably also be okay. And how fantastic is that? Yeah. I think your husband's pretty glad. He said, you know, "What if uh, <laughs> instead of racing the galaxy, what if you know we're birds?" Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a partnership. Maybe it does take two to tango. But I know who did most of the work there and. Just phenomenal. And speaking of work, could you share with us what you're working on now? I know Imminent is another game release or two for you. Share what's Imminent. Yeah. So, um, I have a game called The Fox Experiment uh, that was on Kickstarter last year and will be coming out in retail uh, at the end of November. And then um, the game that I just finished working on is a game called Undergrove, which is about mushrooms trading resources with trees. Um, And it is going to be on Kickstarter on November 7th through sometime in early December. 
And I see that's from Alderac Entertainment Group. So yes. while you are part of the Stonemeyer stable, you are an independent designer and uh, have game will travel. And you've worked with a number of publishers at this point. Yeah, and that's pretty common for freelance designers to sort of hop around and, and find different publishers to work with. Um, I started working with AEG back in 2019. I pitched a game to them in 2018 before Wingspan came out, and, and it was published a little while later. It's called Mariposas. Yes. And I just I really enjoyed working with them. The developer there... Um, who worked on Mariposas with me as a former park ranger. We were just like two peas in a pod working together and decided we wanted to design a game from scratch together. And that's what uh, led to Undergrove. So that's AEG has it because he actually works for AEG. So they yeah. got right of first refusal on that one. It makes sense coming out from them. And it makes sense coming out from you because on your home site, you mentioned that if you're not game designing or playing games, you can be found in the greater D.C. area either hiking birding or looking for mushrooms in the greater DC area and so uh Tussie Mussy undergrow I mean the obviously the natural themes come naturally to you and uh publishers are increasingly interested I hope so Elizabeth you have graciously consented to play buy seller hold with me at the end of this fantastic conversation together thank you again so much for all your insights and sharing and I'm so Proud that you're in my city and that I'm in your city. It's great to have um, a phenomenon, uh, not at all locally. In fact, you probably wouldn't be recognized on the street, but if you walk in any game convention, you're in, anywhere in the world today, you're recognized. So that's kind of a fun dynamic. It's a fun kind of fame. Yeah, you can kind of turn it on and off at will. Yeah, or just go <laughs> mushrooming and not like not even worry about things. So buy, sell, or hold. These are not stocks, but I'm asking you, if they were stocks, would you be buying, selling, or holding? Let's start with the game Monopoly. If Monopoly were a stock, would you be buying, selling, or holding, and why? Are we talking literally about the stock of Monopoly? Because Monopoly still sells millions of copies. So, as a financial investment, (laughs) um, the company that makes Monopoly is doing great. Um, But as a game that I want to play, not so much. And that's a very good answer, along both dynamics, because it's ambiguous, and it, it, it actually points to something that you are very familiar with as both a game designer, but also, in a sense, an entrepreneur, somebody who's increasingly familiar with the business world. You mentioned to me, before we came on, there's not much market research in the world of tabletop games. I mean, it, it's it's mushrooming, speaking of mushrooms, in terms of players and and sales and visibility. I feel like games, there's so many more today than in our youth, and so many Better ones today than in our youth, and uh, and yet there's not much market research. That's my understanding. I mean, I'm sure at the level of Hasbro, you know, and the level of Monopoly, they're definitely doing market research. Uh, people um, in the industry typically sort of uh, segment mass market, which is the the world of Hasbro versus. Um, Hobby market, people often call it um, the world of Stonemeyer and um, ah. these these uh, sort of more complex niche board games that we've been talking about. I think the lines between those are blurring quite a bit. But um, you know, Stonemeyer when they signed Wingspan was a one person company. They don't have a market research. 
budget. Wow. <laughs> it's just a guy running a company by the seat of his pants. He's hired some staff since then. Well, he certainly has earned it, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to hear that, because yeah. he needs a lot of help shipping millions of games <laughs> as, a, as a dude. <laughs> yeah. All right, next one up for you. Buy, sell, or hold the number of female CEOs in the Fortune 500 over the next 50 years. Buy. It's got to go up. It has yeah. been. Yeah. How can it not? I, There's a lot of room for growth. There is. And, I mean, I, I think I'm talking to a feminist with a small F, maybe not a capital F. And, and, and I'll take I, any F. I don't even know Don't'll if it's fair it. for me to say that I'm a feminist, but what I'll say is that I think that I, I always am excited when I see a female CEO for a stock I'm researching, because I feel as if that tells me two things. First of all, um, that this is a stock I'm researching means it's an excellent company because I don't look for mediocre companies. Second, I feel like that person probably had to jump more hurdles to get to that place um, than than if she were a he, and so that gives me more confidence in those kinds of companies. And boy, don't we need more traditional, if this is fair, traditional female energy in our world at large? Uh, a lot less, um, well, not just a lot less sci-fi and trains and castles, but a lot less confrontation, a lot less division. Um, there are a lot of things swarming around our city of Washington, D.C. that I feel like are male ego-driven, for the most part. And I can't wait for the future. You're a buyer. Okay, next one up. Buy, sell, or hold artificial intelligence. Oh, this one's hard. This one's been controversial in the board game world because Terraforming Mars just had a uh, an expansion that they announced where a lot of the art was um, done by AI uh, with programs that do not promise that they mm. are using art that they have permission to use, right? So some of it was probably built on art that was just scraped from the internet and that artists did not give permission for, um, which I have problems with. But all of that said, I think the train has left the station on AI in general. Um, it's clearly doing things that people find useful in many different ways. So I don't want to paint a broad brush and say, like, AI can't happen. AI is obviously going to happen, and I think we need to think carefully about what the best ways are to do it and the, and the best ways to protect people's intellectual property in the context that it's happening. And it is happening in real time. And I agree with you that the train has left the station, the horse is out of the barn, and it's going to be fascinating to figure out not just the next two years, but backwards from the 100 years from now to understand how we got there and where we ended up in terms of who's creating what, who owns what. Uh, this is obviously something that will be relevant to games and publishing and many er other areas of our society. Two more for you, Elizabeth. Buy, sell, or hold crowdfunding if it were a stock. Somewhere in the hold to buy category. I'm not sure if it's going to continue growing, but it's certainly... Um, something that I think people are going to continue using. Within board games specifically, we've seen a couple of alternatives to Kickstarter sprout up, which I think is a really interesting 
development and um they seem to be doing well so um yeah i i think there's demand for it i think it is uh, within the industry that I know the best, it's um, it's serving a real purpose, as we talked about. Um, so, yeah, at least a hold. Last one. Buy, sell, or hold. Giving games as Christmas presents. Buy, but carefully. <laughs> I think it's important to really think about who you're buying for and what they're going to play. And the game that I recommend... As a Christmas present for almost anyone is just one. Have you played just one? I sure have. I've talked about it in this podcast, and I've given it away, and I've told many people to give it to others, and it's worked because everyone loves the game. Just one, which is basically playing up to seven players. It's a word game, and you can explain it. Please do in thirty yeah. seconds or less because it's that simple. Right. So you're playing cooperatively, and the person who's it needs to guess one word. Everyone else knows that word, and they have to write just one word as a clue on a little dry erase board. Yep. I've actually played it with more than seven. You just Someone just needs a piece of paper and a pencil to write their word on. And it's interesting. So the, the one trick, like that would be too easy, right? So the trick is that if two clue givers write the same word, they cancel each other out and then the guesser doesn't get to see that word. So if you go to obvious with your clue, it might not get included, and then the guesser can be really like have a <laughs> bunch of weird things of people that were trying to not be obvious and not cancel out. And then you get the like the layers upon layers of like, oh, we were both trying to not be obvious and canceled each other out <laughs> by thinking of the same second level thing. Yeah, it's it's fun and funny and everyone just gets how to play. So if you need a game for people that don't play games yet or that don't actually want to think that hard, um, I, yeah, I've never met someone that doesn't like just one. Great tip. Elizabeth, you were full of insight, you were full of energy and gaming goodness. And that's what I've enjoyed most about you, because while I'm just meeting you for the first time, I feel like I've gotten to know you over the last four years because I've played your game 56 or more times over the course of these last four years. Some fellow fools listening to us have played it a lot more than that. So, Elizabeth Hargrave, thank you for bringing joy to the world. Oh, thanks for having me. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.